name is Donna Lee Donaldson. I am the country director for the Rwanda Office of Educate. So Educate is a social enterprise NGO that partners with governments that are seeking to reform education systems, to change the way that teachers teach, and ultimately to improve the livelihoods of the youth. I am originally from Jamaica, but as I said, I now live in Rwanda. Okay. And you want me to talk about the journey of how I got here? So um, the backstory is I was born and raised in Jamaica. I went to university and law school in the US, um, got scholarships for both of my degrees, which is how I was able to go. And then I practiced law in New York and ultimately decided that I wanted to do something different, move somewhere else, but keep on doing work in the public sector. And at the time, a good Ghanaian friend of mine, who's still a very dear friend, who I had gone to university with, she actually was really encouraging me to come to Ghana with her because she wanted to move back home. And she gave you know, a message that many of us have heard about the need for um, the sons and daughters of the diaspora to come back to the continent and really be a part of building uh, 21st century Africa. And she really sold me on it very well, but I was really, convicted about wanting to make sure I had a job first before I came and so I didn't find what I was looking for in Ghana at the time but I did find a really great opportunity in Rwanda and that was over five years ago and I'm still in Rwanda today so it seems like things have been working out well so I've been able to continue working in the education sector in Rwanda which I'm really happy about. Um, I first came to work with an organization called Kepler and working in that organization, I was one of the founding team members. We actually started a university in Kigali, which is still there today and which is flourishing and doing very well. We also created the first university in a refugee camp in Rwanda. And so that's uh, another project that also continues to run and we have um, great support to keep that going and there's lots of great staff you now keeping that mission going. Uh, for me it was really important to do work with the government because I'm a big believer in systems level change. That's why I went to law school in the first place and so that's why I made the transition to the work I'm doing now which is more about supporting reforms across the entire education system not just in one school. Wow. Was uh, studying law your first choice? Oh no, I went through many, many choices. My mother's a chemistry teacher, was a chemistry teacher for 40 years, so uh, I grew up definitely thinking I was going to go to med school. I was a chemistry honors student in university, actually, for the first two and a half or so years. But what happened was I really loved the theory of chemistry, but I hated the labs. And so the more advanced you get as a science major, you end up spending you know, 12, 18, 20 hours of your week just in the lab, and I just did not like it. I was finding the theory, didn't like the labs, and so I had to figure out what was I going to do if I didn't really enjoy that. Um, by that point, I had picked up English as a second major because I really love languages. I, you know, love reading all the books, writing all the critical essays and all of that. Um, and so I ended up, I had English as a kind of a backup major, and once I switched completely out of sciences, I picked up social science as a second one. So I graduated with majors in English and social and behavioral sciences. Okay. Um, and from that, I knew I wanted to do policy change, coming out of various experiences I had. I interned at a lot of different places, and I kind of landed on this idea of wanting to do changes um, in government policies. And so that's where the desire to go to law school came from. Okay. Right now in, in the world, mm -hmm. there are many challenges, yeah? What do you think are the main, probably two or three challenges that we can tackle? 
Because if I ask you the stuff that we can tackle, the, the, there's a laundry list. Yeah. But what are some of the stuff we can tackle and probably it doesn't require a lot of, of initiative? Wow, it doesn't require a lot of initiative. I think that part really throws the question off because I think the tough problems do require a lot of collaboration to solve. Um, in fact, I think sometimes we are too disengaged, like we're leaving problems to be solved by somebody else instead of taking the responsibility. Uh, and I think all of us have a part to play. So I don't really think there are simple solutions, but I think there are solutions that could be simple actually if everybody did a small piece of them. So one example of that is closing um, the, the gaps that relate to social inequality. So that very wide margin between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor, right? I'm sure we've all heard some statistics about how 20% um, of the world has 80% of the wealth and things of that nature. Uh, and so it really should not be that hard for us to do some amount of wealth um, redistribution. Not saying that we should take away what people earn, right? But we also know realistically if somebody has um, you know, Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett's level of wealth, or they're never going to spend it in their lifetime, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, somebody's outside starving, or there are people in their companies that uh, are living out of their cars. Like, we hear those stories of even Amazon employees um, fainting at work, not being able to access healthcare. It doesn't really make sense, right? So, I'm not saying we should go and snatch money from people, <laughs> but I think we have to have some serious conversations about how do we ensure that we don't have wealth being hoarded in spaces when there are people literally starving and literally dying from um, conditions that could be remedied if funds were made accessible to them. That's one. A second one uh, is obviously corruption in governments. Uh, I think sometimes we don't hold our governments accountable to us when we should because they are put there to work for us. And similarly sometimes um, on the other side of it, sometimes they go in with the wrong intentions or they go in with the right intentions and somewhere along the line they lose sight of what they went there to do in the first place. So I do think we need to, to have a serious look on a global level, not just on the continent but everywhere, including where I'm from um, and including many of the countries that claim to be leaders in, in, in the political sphere. We always see that everywhere has disenfranchised people, every single country. Um, and the political systems are supposed to be able to remedy that. So I think we have to look really carefully about how can the public, how can the society hold its leaders more accountable for their actions? Is it a winnable dream? Or it's a, a thing we should do because it's the right thing to do, despite the, the challenge itself? Because sometimes it seems like the political system is so deeply entrenched in the wrong direction mm -hmm. that finding the right direction is and and i don't want to go deep into pol uh, policy but yeah. you know i think i think it's possible um i think it's important for me to, to tell myself it's possible because if i didn't have hope that that life could change how would i get out of bed in the morning i would be depressed um i wouldn't be motivated to do the work that i do because why would i spend time trying to improve the education system if i didn't believe it could be improved right so uh is it something that i think we will see a major overturn in my lifetime no i don't think this is uh 
10 year or 20 year solution i think it takes a long time to shift mindsets right that takes generations right so even if we make changes and decisions now at the, at the policy at the government level the people who are 75 years old 80 years old they grew up in a totally different system even people that are like 30 20 it's hard to really get them to change and so it will take years to change their mindsets and then we'll have to raise up a whole new generation behind them but it can be done right I, I really believe it can be done I think we have seen attitudes about many things in life change over time certainly the views that we hold now are not the same as what our ancestors 10 generations ago did something happen right evolutions happen we learn more about science about society and all those things so um, that alone should show us that there is hope for some kind of changes to happen but it's just gonna be slow so I think we have to be persistent and really committed to the task okay being the optimism optimist that I am oh well the word escapes me so being the optimist that I am from your from your own point of view yeah mm -hmm. what? what would you consider some of the wins like probably just one or two wins that you think are changing lives well some of them are legal um and obviously i believe in the power of the law right as somebody that went through through that kind of education but we have seen that in different countries where we have changed laws that have made things that used to be commonplace um abuses against certain populations are now illegal now that doesn't mean all those attitudes change right we see that with apartheid we see that with even you know post civil rights movement in the u.s there are still lots of challenges because people's mindsets didn't necessarily change but there were slow slow cracks were made right in in kind of the surface of these problems and so um i think that's just one example of how the fact that schools are deterrogated, for example, or the fact that in many countries where race used to be an absolute barrier to somebody having a job, um, now legally somebody's not allowed to tell you you cannot get a job because you're black. They might try other ways, and they do try other ways, but we do have mechanisms to fight about them. Even some of the things that we're allowed to do um, as women, right? Um, the fact that the fact that I'm able to even have a degree. Um, three generations ago would not have been possible for a, a wide variety of reasons, whether it's societal, in my culture, and other cultures where it was just not permitted. We look at Saudi Arabia where women can drive now. You know, like little things like that, um, it doesn't mean that the entire culture has shifted, but it does make a difference for that woman who can now drive or that child that can now go to school. What makes you wake up in the morning? You, you, we, we had discussed that briefly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what makes you wake up in the morning? Because for me, there's another story to tell. Mm -hmm. There's another of our story to tell in the world. Is a hungry for our stories. What makes you wake up in the morning? Oh, that's why you wake up in the morning. Because one big part, for... and another another one is I run an innovation space, mm. uh, and we innovate some of the most awesome stuff in maternal and newborn health. Mm. Uh, so that's that's kind of inspiring. Okay. Yeah. So things that wake me up in the morning, one is I actually really am passionate about education. Uh, I believe that it's a fundamental right that every child has and yet is not being properly delivered. Um, even to, in situations where we've given children access, we don't give them equal access, we don't give them the same quality of education. And I don't believe that the community you're born in should dictate 
the quality of education that you have. Um, so that that really makes me wake up in the morning, like a, a real burning desire to improve education conditions. That's one of them. A second thing is I am really personally concerned about the global black condition. Uh, I think it's a really unfortunate thing that in almost any country you go to, if you look at the darkest people in that country, somehow they are the poorest ones, right? And that is not an accident, it's not a coincidence. Um, a lot of the world's wealth was built on the backs of black people and there are lots of systems in place now that I think promote um, and propagate a lot of anti-black capitalism and so that's something I think about is when I die I would like to die knowing that I did something to help to elevate the condition of black people and so a part of that is, is working education it's why I do the work that I do um, a part of it is also like I'm very much into the creative arts and telling our own stories whether it's through literature whether it's through music or whatever forms because our stories are really important and I think that is a, a connecting force across the diaspora that helps us to realize that we aren't alone and it helps us to learn from each other and so that's really important to me as well. Uh, in closing, okay. anything that, that you think we've left out? <laughs> no. Because this has because been I a... don't even know the purpose. <laughs> I don't even know what you're going to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it's been a wider conversation and we're just going to say hello to the people perhaps. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't even know. What I mean, what do you think? What could I have... What would what would you want me to add? Just you know, it's telling our stories, so uh, you know, it's it's a start. It's a start. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to end. <laughs> do you have, give me a suggestion, please. Of how to end. We've had what you do for work. Mm -hmm. What is it you do for fun? Oh, oh gosh, what is fun? Okay, what I do for fun? When I briefly mention that I'm very much into the creative space, so I love to write. Um, I really enjoy music, and I love finding Afro-Caribbean connections. That's also something else that I'm really passionate about is um, bridging those connections between the Caribbean and Africa uh, and the global black community, as I said before. Because one thing that really pains me is that within our communities, we don't, I feel like we don't look to each other as experts. So for example, if somebody in Brazil is trying to solve our problem, they don't think that somebody in Kenya can solve it. If somebody in Uganda is trying to solve a problem, they don't think that somebody in Jamaica can solve it, right? Like we, we never, we think of all the experts as the quote-unquote Western countries, but there is so much excellence and there's so much innovation and so much uh, creativity within our communities that I really want us to acknowledge that we can solve our own problems, that there's so much expertise within our community that we, we don't tap into. So that's something that I'm really interested about on an intellectual level. Um, one of the ways that I try to capture that is by interviewing people and collecting their stories. So I do have a podcast where um, it's called Diaspora Diary. So if you look on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere you find podcasts, if you search Diaspora Diary, you'll find it. And that's where I try to catalog those stories. So I interview whether it's um, you know, a black American entrepreneur in Rwanda or a Ugandan, or no, a Jamaican entrepreneur in Uganda, or just like different people from across the diaspora who have been traveling and trying to, to um, build like a different narratives than the ones that we normally hear about ourselves. So if people want to stay in contact with me and know more about what I do in terms of telling those stories, they can put my podcast up. Okay, what's that podcast again? Diaspora Diary. Sounds interesting. Yeah.
and it's on iTunes, iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. Everywhere podcasts are found. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I think those are probably the main ones that people use. Okay. Yeah. Great stuff. I think it's 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 been a really great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, on the periphery, on the periphery of uh, what was the conference again? <laughs> So it's the Seagull Family Foundation's annual meeting. So the Seagull Family Foundation uh, is a funder of, at this point, I think hundreds of NGOs across um, East Africa. I would say East and Southern Africa. So what they do is they give funding. Okay, so what the Seagull Family Foundation. I'm gonna start over. Okay, what the Seagull Family Foundation does is it gives funding to NGOs um, that are solving problems in um, sectors such as education, health, um, you know, gender equity. It's a wide variety of, of social issues are, are covered by the foundation. But going beyond that, I think one thing that sets them apart is that they really try to focus on building community amongst those NGOs because the idea is that is that it's not the foundation that should give money and throw at a problem. It's people in the countries that should be coming together and forming their own communities and collaborating. Yeah, baby cry. <laughs> cry. Yeah. It's people in these countries that should be forming communities and solving problems um, together. And so the purpose of the meeting is really to bring all of the people you know, in the various um, sectors together so that we can learn from each other, um, share experiences, and then hopefully when we go back, we will go back with, you know, new friends that we've met here, we'll keep in touch, and we will continue to build those relationships to help us to approach problems in, uh, in a newer way, in a more meaningful and sustainable way. So, for example, if I'm working on an, on an education issue with my team in Rwanda, it's just, you know, 30 of us thinking about it, but if I now know that there are these other 30 organizations between Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Malawi, Burundi that are working on this issue in some other way, now we have created a bigger network and hopefully we can communicate and collaborate to work on these problems um, in, a, in a broader sense. Okay. Okay. So African solution by Africans? Yes. For Africans in Africa? Yes. <laughs> Whoa, what's an <laughs> Local oh. solutions. Local, local solu solutions. Local solutions for local problems. There's actually a panel tomorrow with that title, I believe, among them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And thank you for your time. And thank you for the good work that you're doing. Thank you. And uh, thank you for. I, I just ambushed you. You did. <laughs> You did. And I still don't even know where this is going, which is slightly scary to me because I'm very much a control freak. So not knowing how you're going to use it is really um, scaring me. That, that's really an oxymoron because you do a podcast and yeah. podcast anything goes. That's true. That's true. But you know, I, yeah. Oh, that's how you release your control. <laughs> I guess. The creative part is like releasing, you yes. know? Yeah. And also with the podcast, I interview. So I'm still in control. I'm not being interviewed, which is different. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so you don't do a lot of interviews? No, I interview but, people. So, I mean, yeah, that, that we get. That, that's yeah. now being on the, the other side of that, the camera. Yeah, that's unusual. That, that part Why is unusual? unusual? I mean, You're very bubbly. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's something else I do for fun. I host events. Okay. So uh, my concerts, I MC events, moderate panels, things like that. What, what kind of events? 
anything. So I've done concerts, I've mm. done um, like high level conferences at those big summits, I've done um, a lot of arts events, like performing arts, um, I've done literary events, so like, mm. you know, with lots of authors, I've done award shows, just a variety. Yeah. I ran a music event for about 20 years. Okay. And um, I just worked out recently, given, mm. I mean, given the talent that we have in this country and in Africa right, mm. right now, I mean, the level of growth and the level of adaptation is a bit still slow. Okay. So that's why I, I have embarked on telling our stories again, going back to that, because that was my first love, mm. poetry, telling stories and uh, music, okay. films, those kind of things. And now I'm thinking innovation, mm -hmm. because we have enough laundry apps and apps we don't use. Okay. So how about we take apps and make actual products, hardware, those kind of things, and then put them in the world and collaborate with the biggest manufacturers, players, NGOs, whoever is out there. So are you into like, um, like maker spaces, fabrication, internet of things, that kind of... Exactly. Okay. I'm part of the makerspace Nairobi. Oh, okay. And uh, tomorrow? We're going to Kenyatta National Hospital okay. uh, for a new hackathon. Oh. So it's going to be week two. They're there for eight weeks. So, so eight Saturdays. Mm -hmm. But we call them eight weeks. And between week one and week eight, they, they are supposed to come up with a real product, prototyped, done, researched, uh, and talk to clinicians. So those, those kind of things. So tomorrow is their first visit. On Saturday, they go back, put it down, you should come visit. Okay. Yeah. See, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna be here. I'm doing. I'm doing two panels on Saturday. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay.